All right, welcome back to another episode of Finding Peaks. Joined, I, the last time we were doing this, I did not introduce you guys. Oh, no so, one knows who we I, are now. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so. If you don't know by now. I am, I am Brandon Burns, the host, don't steal my thunder, yeah. okay? <laughs> Chief Operating Officer, Clint Nicholson, everybody. LAC, LPC, LPC, LAC, it's the order. Either way. Jason Friesma, LPC, LAC, Chief Clinical Officer. Yeah. Brandon Burns, Full stop. Executive Officer. All right. BA, Philosophy. Philosophy. University of Washington. Yeah. yeah. You did. Basically, I'm the most important. So, <laughs> okay. um, and just, humble. Again, <laughs> just trying to bring a little energy into the episode, you know, appease the audience, get everybody a little excited. Um, We've commonly heard in this uh, industry, maybe we even brought it up, that the opposite of addiction is connection. We're not going to go down that rabbit hole today, but it is a phrase that I wanted to use to go down another rabbit hole that is the opposite of boundaries is enabling, right? Mm -hmm. We've been talking a little bit about boundaries and what it means to um, show up and bring forward boundaries on behalf of the individual, get them directed into care, those sorts of things. But Let's talk a little bit about enabling today and what that looks like. So when we're not boundaried, we're enabling. Mm -hmm. And maybe we can think about this in three different phases. What does enabling look like before treatment? What does it look like during treatment? What does it look like after treatment? So the first question, mm -hmm. what does enabling look like prior to somebody admitting to care? I, I mean, I, I love that you asked a question and I, yeah. I was waiting for it. Yeah. <laughs> Four more to come. Chief but, Clinical, uh, hit us with it. I get it. I get the question, and it was so succinct. Um, enabling before treatment, it, frankly, it, it it extends. I was we were talking a little bit before the show that a lot of times it involves either money or resources or time of family, um, and really it's in the direction of allowing somebody to continue in their behaviors that are likely causing them a lot of harm and would lead to needing a stay at peaks. And, and I can't tell you how many parents I've talked to who have uh, bought substances directly for their loved one or continue to provide their loved one uh, cash money, um, even though practically speaking, they might say it's for rent or whatever, but, but literally that money is going... Or um, I've also talked to a lot of families, too, who set boundaries, and then when it comes time to kind of enforce a boundary, um, they'll just set a new boundary. Uh, and so that, that's what I've seen enabling look like a lot on the front end is just um, a constant, um, well, allowing a behavior, allowing a, an addiction a lot of times, or even a mental health issue, to continue going on. And enabling by itself just implies that that the behavior given by a loved one um, allows the addiction to keep advancing. It's keeping the addiction actually moving forward rather than uh, putting the boundary or, or helping to stop it. I'll, it. I'll kick it over to you there, Chief. Yeah, I think, um, I guess I see it in just slightly different terms, but relatively uh, with, the, with using Jason's description, I think before treatment, um, enabling is just chaos. It's just chaos. There's no, nobody knows where they stand. Mm. You know, there's no direction. There's no, there's, there's no 
ability to navigate situations, whether that's physically, emotionally. Um, there, there is just a complete absence of um, clarity and a, a really, a, again, a complete absence of just direction. So. And, and I want to add to that, because um, a lot of times uh, enabling a watch to be really progressive, mm -hmm. um, where there's just a slight boundary violation and a slight boundary violation and a slight boundary violation, and I'm at a heroin dealer's office, or uh, office, house, <laughs> uh, right. picking up heroin. Right. But it was this series of a thousand decisions before that to not hold boundaries right. in this incremental uh, warping of one's values, I think, or distortion of that to just right. uh, enable somebody to just make it one more night or whatever. Um, so that families suddenly look up and are like, we're in chaos and I don't even know how we got here. Absolutely. Yeah, there's um, a sort of like exponential quality to yeah. it. It's like it just, it starts to gain its own momentum and before you know it, it has its own weather pattern. I mean, you just, you have, it's a gravitational force around that the enabling that has created this, this again, this, this world of chaos and where all of a sudden you, you kind of look up and you're like, holy crap, what happened? You know, how did we even get here? And I think at that, at that point is maybe when you get the first phone call. It's that first moment of like, where am I and how do I, how do I figure out how to move forward from here? Yeah. One of the things that we you know, certainly see in those first phone calls or when families are bringing their enabling behavior forward in, uh, in this regard is, um, well, I guess what I want to say about it more so to the point is that w you wouldn't, if it wasn't your loved one, if a friend called any of us in this room, if you said, you know, hey, Brandon, send me a hundred bucks, I'm going to go buy some dope today. To me, like the boundary is like, that's not loving. That's not loving for me to give you that cash, knowing where it's going to go. So regardless of it being a loved one, um, if we wouldn't do it for anybody else, why are we doing it in these instances? And so I just kind of want to, I guess in my own words, like reinforce what the boundary concept there is, is that it's not a loving thing to do. Um, if it's not a loving thing to do in the direction of a friend, then why would we consider it a loving thing to do for our loved ones? No matter how much they're clawing at the door, pounding on it in that regard, um, so I think that actually speaks to some of the chaos that you experience, because one thing that I think happens is you lose um, perspective of your emotions and all of a sudden what feels like love is actually fear. You know, you think you're moving from this space of love, but really you're, you're so discombobulated that you've actually started to move from a place of fear. And I think that that is one of the, uh, it's a huge trap that families fall into and they're unable to take that step backwards and sort of have that moment of like, wait, if I wouldn't do this for anybody else, why, would, why am I doing this now? Because they've sort of, uh, they've, they've just flipped those two emotions and so that, uh, between love and fear. You know, that would kind of love it. my mind. And that's why I continue to bring you guys on because you're the talent mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm the host. Yeah. Yeah, and Quentin's loves to talk about emotions. I, I do. <laughs> I've talked about like three of them today. <laughs> So I feel we like got I'm a, good for the next We got all kinds of feelers going on. Yeah. <laughs> but I do think, I think it's just a really great point too. That, because um, I do think no family member wants to watch their loved one be in pain. And so a lot of times it is those little decisions that get somebody out of the immediate pain mm -hmm. that are likely enabling behaviors, but it gets them out of the instant or immediate pain. And so that just seems like the right thing to do in the moment. Right. And we'll worry about recovery down the road or we'll, 
we'll set the new boundary tomorrow, whatever, but tonight they just need to get out of whatever discomfort they're in. So I'm willing to do anything at that moment for them. Mm -hmm. But it's that aggregated over time that just leads to these really right. chaotic environments. Absolutely. And we start and we continue to experience that. And to kind of go into that second question, we continue to experience that once <clears throat> clients are actually in treatment. It's sort of uh, the echo of that behavior once a client comes in and mm -hmm. then all of a sudden they're calling and saying, hey, the bed's too hard. The food's the food is, uh, I don't know, too soggy. The the people are mean to me, and all of a sudden the parents are, are the families back in trying to rescue again. They slip back into that sort of fear space. And, and they, even though they know and they've worked so hard to get family into treatment, all of a the sudden there's still this, this sort of automatic response to, rest, to continue to rescue when, once they hear that distress. So you still see them moving from a place of fear, particularly early on in the treatment episode. Well, doesn't, doesn't it make sense too that like, we tell families all the time that just because the substance use has stopped doesn't mean that things are better like that. Yeah. A lot of the, the behavior of the person struggling with addiction has suddenly begun to change or shift. Like there'll be ongoing lying, there'll be ongoing deception or whatever. And then on this meta level, if you will, the family is used to hearing, Absolutely. hey, I'm uncomfortable. Mom, dad, I'm uncomfortable. Right. Oh, we'll help you stop being uncomfortable. Absolutely. What their Tempur-Pedic yeah. beds aren't like, soft enough? Well... Right. I'll well, call somebody. Yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah, we better get you out of there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, you know, for families, oftentimes, like teaching them in treatment, like, hey, your loved one is safe. <laughs> I promise you that. And they are uh, cared for. And we don't need you to rush and meet all of their needs. Right. Um, absolutely. That, in fact, actually, it's counterproductive to the whole process. Yeah. yeah. So I think that that would be, to summarize that, the, the answer of what does enabling look like in treatment, it's, it looks like rescuing. I think that that would be the easiest way for me to put it. So. Well, I'm starting to feel a little invisible now because you stole my thunder <laughs> so on the second sorry. question. <laughs> so I'm no longer going to prompt you guys about what we're going to talk about. We're just going <laughs> to question right. by well, question. You laid out little we bits gonna... I laid it all yeah. out. So you yeah. just yeah. went you through did. it, making yeah. me invisible and feeling less of a right. person. So well, we I... can rescue you, I guess, yeah. here or enable. Yeah. yeah, trying to build the concept. Maybe we insert <laughs> at this point just so I can get some of my thunder back. Absolutely. Codependency. Yeah. How does that resonating now? Because it feels like what I what I want to capture maybe with that language is just that from what you said from pre-treatment into treatment, you can start to experience the bleed over of those emotional states and that codependent feature that is common within our industry. And that codependent feature is a is a family system sickness, mm -hmm. right? In a big way. And you can start to see it sort of cross over in, in its variations as it's taking place. But really just want to acknowledge that with family members, the, the reason there is this tone of sickness is because you're engaged with the addiction. You are attached to it, suffering in the process, so worked up on the front end here that as it moves into treatment, you continue forward in just a, what feels like a new and a different way, but it's the same sort of behaviors, just Absolutely. compounding in different settings with a little bit tone of positivity because now it's in treatment rather than prior to treatment, right? So. Anything we can add to that sort of codependent sort of sickness that's now traversing through as the individual moves forward? What came to my mind as you were talking is, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I think we talked about like the neural pathways and, and the reward centers and, and how um, people who are using drugs, uh, this pattern of behavior just becomes this trench and that this is what they automatically do. 
and the family have the same thing. Their rewards look different. It isn't drugs. It's like, oh, my son is safe. That, that rewards me. Or like, I did enough to keep him alive or keep, keep him going this time. Or, I'm, you know, maybe he'll be okay this time. And so there is this same groove. And so when, when we have clients come in, the loved ones are, can still have that same, like, I wonder if they're okay. Or I wonder, right. like, I have to constantly be in this. And like, we've talked to, to couples that are, like their relationship, 98% of it is just involves talking about their loved one's addiction. And like their, their marriage is almost in tatters. We're like, what do we talk about right. now? Because like, uh, you know, our son is starting to get better and how what do we, we actually, yeah, what, do, what do we yeah, actually yeah. do? Right. We better just talk right. about it. And I hope the bed is comfortable or, yeah, in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so like, yeah. but if that makes sense, like it has that same neural pathways that almost have to Absolutely. be rewired too. And it doesn't happen automatically. Yeah. It, it takes I, some time. And there's this recognition, I think at some point where, you know, it, the work again goes on both sides as far as the change and the transformation that you're looking for. And when your loved one who is in treatment begins to change and transform, that automatically requires the family, the loved ones, to start changing as well. You know, it's the way that the sort of relationships maintain what's called homeostasis, right? They, they're always trying to seek a balance. And as one person in a family system changes, it necessarily requi um, requires that everybody else in that family system mm -hmm. change to adapt. And I, a lot of times families and loved ones aren't, aren't prepared for that. They, real, they think that they're sending their loved one off to go make the change that they need to make and then, every, and then they come back to us whole and complete, not realizing that their transformation is happening as well. Like their, their time to heal and to, and to sort of um, grow into this, new, into this sort of like new stage in their relationship has already started as well. And I think it kind of can come up as a pretty big surprise sometimes and well, shows it, up as code And actually at its extreme, and I, I haven't seen this a ton in my years, but I have seen it where family members who are supportive of the recovery process have actually enabled a relapse on the back end to get back into the homeostasis that they were used to. Absolutely. Yeah. Like they, they, were, they almost relapsed in their enabling prior to a discharging client relapsing in their addiction, if that right. makes sense. Like yeah. and you we're did right it. back in chaos. Yeah, yeah. right. Like we Absolutely. did better when we were... <laughs> <laughs> when yeah. we were doing that. Absolutely. I know you better as, a, as an active alcoholic yeah. than I do as somebody who's trying to, to live in a life of recovery. So, and it's, it's, it's an interesting um, thing to witness from the outside. And like Jason said, which is so interesting that he, I mean, I'm talking about feelings, he's talking about the brain. I know, I don't but, get uh, it. I know, we're all over Up the place today. Down. So, yeah. yeah. But, I'm, um, I'm invisible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but again, you know, we're like looking, uh, we're, we, we recognize or we start to see this sort of entrenchment of behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. It, I want to go on a tangent here, but for the sake of time, I'm going to, I'm going to put it to bed, maybe introduce it at the end here. But so now we're transitioning out of, you know, treatment in that regard. And I hear strongly, and it's certainly true, and certainly in our experiences at Peaks Recovery, right, that the family system has to be included in this. Absolutely. We have to build them up in a way that's building up at the same time as the patient um, so that everybody's informed about how this um, goes about. But I constantly hear, and I want to use the word constant, like when we go to refer families to like, hey, you know, look at Alan and make these connections, you know, reach out to families. It's the sort of same behavior and feedback that we get from the, the client who's relapsed in, after prior treatment episodes of, 
no, 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 I've done that. It doesn't work for me. You know, there is this experience that families have too of like the information I've been given, the resources you've given aren't working for me. But it seems like in a very strong way as well too that we are trying to um, remove that and compel you to actually engage with it. It's not about working for you in the sense that we're turning some knobs and this sort of feature and all of a sudden, you know, we get it as a family system. You have to embrace the language, the education, the information we're giving you as families in this regard to really know how to strongly hold those boundaries and not enable the loved one post-treatment um, in this regard. But now we get this, you know, again, this bleed over into post-treatment and kind of from your guys' perspective now, what does that post-treatment enabling start to look like? You know, I heard the homeostasis and how it kind of just clicks back into place, but being more clear from my host position and asking these questions, what are we, let's talk a little bit more about it. Right. <clears throat> okay, so obviously kind of a family enabling a literal relapse is, it would be an pretty extreme. That'd be a pretty extreme. Yeah, pretty extreme. Um, <clears throat> but if you go back to, to what I mentioned at the beginning of this, would be this slow, incremental mm -hmm. uh, relapse is much more common. Whether it's, um, it, you know, what, what somebody coming home may say is like, listen, I don't, I don't want to go to my therapist anymore. They're, right. I don't, I'm not getting a lot out of my IOP or I'm not, you know, yeah. my support meetings right. are starting to go downhill. Right. And, yeah, I don't like the guys in my sober living. And yeah. Yeah. And, and an enabling behavior would kind of be to align with that rather than saying, so then what are you going to, so therefore what are you going to do to build your support? Right. Uh, like enabling kind of would get in alignment with kind of a reduction in a, in a return to the old behavior. Holding good boundaries doesn't have to be forceful or anything. Ba you know, boundaries, I did want to make sure I mentioned too, boundaries are for uh, the person setting them to create a protection. They aren't to change anybody else's behavior, right? So like when, when a loved one is coming out of treatment, the boundaries that, that somebody, a family member puts in place is to protect them. Mm -hmm. Not like I gotta set boundaries in order uh, to make sure my loved one stays sober. That's not a boundary. Mm -hmm. um, a boundary says, listen, if, if you kind of follow your aftercare plan, then you're welcome to do these things or we'll support you financially in these specific ways. Um, but if you begin to violate those, then our, then our support ends. That's a boundary because it's saying that's where I end and that's where right. you get to begin. Um, because I do think that is a, a, families can fall into that pattern too where I'm setting a boundary, but it's really about I'm setting a boundary to control and manipulate you. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, do what I want you to do. Right. The boundaries say regardless of what you do, this is what I'm willing to do uh, on my side. Right. You start to, you slip from, um, you start to slip in this moment where you are enabling rather than empowering, right? I think that that's what you start to see because mm. healthy, good support after a treatment episode or while somebody is inactive in recovery is all about empowering them to continue on that journey as opposed to enabling starts to take them further off that path rather than challenging them or empowering them to figure out like ways like Jason was saying mm -hmm. to maintain what they're doing to figure out a way forward to get themselves out of the discomfort on their own or to find a way to get out of discomfort that doesn't allow them to fall back into those entrenched behaviors um, 
yeah, so I think that that's, it, it shows up like that, I think, a lot of ways where you start to see, rather than empowering a the patient or the client or the loved one, you, you slip back into the enabling behaviors. Yeah, and so I, where I know we're at the tail end of this episode, but I do want to get this in because I, I just think it's important to address or maybe some information or guidance that we can give to families in regards to there's something about this industry, you know, when we think about concepts like the, the PM Melody model and the language that she uses, for example, to describe what trauma is, she says that trauma is anything less than nurturing. And that could be a lot of things. In this industry, you know, when we talk about grief and loss or relationships and these aspects of our curriculum, you know, trauma and so forth, once the family knows or aware of sort of root causes of what, you know, is driving the intensity of the addiction or maybe the intensity of the use that led to the addiction um, in this regard, it, it's, for me, it, it sort of leaves them vulnerable or in a position to feel like they're walking on pins and needles. Like if I push too hard, they'll relapse. Or anything less than nurturing, gosh, I should probably not do these things. And I want to alleviate families a little bit from this concept that we're constantly walking on pins and needles and allow them to separate themselves a little bit from you know, potential relapse episodes and that sort of thing. And just curious if you guys have any language or guidance we can give in that regard. Um, because I think it's important because I was talking with a mom last week, and it seems like she's doing everything she can to sort of like, you know, nurture, fix, resolve, you know, move the boundaries all over the place to nurture the situation because she's anticipating he's going to yell at me, he's going to slam his door, he's going to do these sort of things along the way. And, uh, but I don't think that the goal here is to be that delicate or to walk in that mm -hmm. sort of way. Yeah, and I think, I think you hit the nail on the head, and actually. Um, this came up with a family member that I was talking to just last week um, who was talking about not wanting to parent uh, their partner. Um, and they were talking about their fear of like, you know, if I, if I suspect, you know, a relapse or drinking, I don't want to parent them or police them or follow them around, but I don't know what to do. And, and what I actually suggest was like, well, then why don't you ask your partner which, what they would like for you to do? Too, because like it, it, we we don't have to like come up with everything. Like how how ask your partner what they would want you to do if they if you suspect a relapse, and to have that conversation. I get I say that because I think a lot of times boundaries uh, that are put in place when the emotions are high. So I'm going to talk about having low emotions again. But like boundaries should be in place when emotions are low and anger isn't high. Old ways, oftentimes, I'm, you're, you're throwing boundaries out when you're angry or afraid or frustrated or whatever. And really, w when somebody's kind of in, in a residential setting or whatever, that's a great time to have that conversation and partner with your loved one. Like, what, what would reach you uh, if you are um, having this concern? And how can I say it in a way that uh, will, will least likely lead to uh, defensiveness and most likely lead to... Um, conversation. Um, so I think having a conversation beforehand, not during, uh, would be what I would say to them. I would, I would say uh, we have really getting families to see that nurturing has nothing to do with comforting. You know, like mm. those two things are very different. Yeah. To nurture somebody can feel really awkward. It can feel, it can be um, hard, it can be rough, it can be very, very, very uncomfortable. And I think that we often associate that in order to nurture, the result means that you feel good afterwards, and that is not nurturing. Nurturing is much more dynamic than that. Nurturing is about 
love and keeping somebody alive, you know, not love and making somebody feel comfortable. Brilliant. Well, I'm glad we could top the day off with that because <laughs> I, I felt like it was important to convey. So um, in exiting this, thank you so much, everybody, for joining us today, for allowing us to go a little bit over our natural timelines to convey just a bit more information about this. Boundaries enabling at topics are um, going to be an ongoing feature of our show in a variety of different ways. Um, we're looking forward to really coming up with a strong schedule um, in the month of August so that we can convey uh, new guests um, onto the show um, and bring forward some additional information to support families and, and family systems. Um, check us out on all the things the kids are doing these days, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, uh, podcast, TikTok. and uh, FindingPeaks at PeaksRecovery.com. If you got questions, thoughts, ideas you want to throw our way, uh, certainly happy to engage with those questions thoughtfully and um, bring in, uh, those topics up in future episodes to your all benefit. So thanks again for being with us today, and we'll see you again next time.